not necessarily an organized thing, this center-right. And it is, it's, it's been confusing ever since 2016 because the red flag has gone into some marshlands that we're not used to seeing it in. But that's, that's the challenge for us is at republician.org is making a conservative case for climate action. And um, as we reform a center-right, I think we'll find it to be bedrock conservatism to, to just fix climate change. Democrats are dominating the public dialogue on climate change. That is just a fact. It's part of their party platform in a way that it simply isn't for Republicans. And yet, things aren't entirely black and white, or blue and red. In this episode, we look at a range of Republican views on climate issues, from flat-out denialism to reticent acceptance to legitimate climate commitments. The Republican Party's stance on climate change is shifting, but will any conservative climate proposals actually work? Welcome to Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute and the Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation. I'm Julia Piper, contributing editor with Green Tech Media, and also a senior fellow with the Atlantic Council. And I'm here, as always, with Brandon Hurlbutt and Shane Skelton to work through the political weeds. Brandon is, of course, our Democrat, partner at Boundary Stone Partners, and a former chief of staff at the Department of Energy under Secretary Stephen Chu. And Shane is our Republican, a partner at consulting firm S2C Pacific, and a former energy advisor to House Speaker Paul Ryan. And it's nice to be back in one place with Victoria, our producer. Uh, Shane, you were on the phone last time, so this is this is kind of nice. Yeah, I was on the phone, but didn't you go to China? <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I did go to China, which is why we had to miss a week last week, because I couldn't quite get online the way I hoped to. The uh, firewall is a real deal, and certain sites are blocked, but also just because I was super busy. I was there with New Energy Nexus, which is a nonprofit that supports uh, clean tech startups here in California, but also around the world. And I was invited to come along with New Energy Nexus and a group of U.S. startups, as well as David Hosschild, the head of the California Energy Commission to a first annual conference in Chengdu, China for the energy internet. We were also there to see the launch of a new energy internet school as part of Tsinghua University. And I have to say, it was quite impressive. Uh, the people were impressive. The conference itself was, was well attended. And the facilities were brand new, state-of-the-art, multiple buildings. And you definitely got a sense that the energy internet, the idea of digital technologies that enable all kinds of clean energy, uh, clean energy solutions on the grid, that this is a new strategic focus area for China. And when they do something, they do it seriously. And so, you know, there's a, a lot to any story, but I have to say that I, I, I see what the experts are saying when they talk about America and perhaps the Western world getting left behind when it comes to clean energy innovation. And upon returning home, you know, the division that we see over uh, addressing climate and clean energy solutions seems so short term and, and small in a way. And, you know, it feels like there is a real chance that the U.S. could miss out on something without a longer term strategic vision. I feel like a house divided is a consequence of a free society. It's really easy to sort of be uniformly uh, in agreement on everything in a dictatorial regime. I think there's a lot of things that we could all do better, but being more like China would not be something that I'd put on my list. I mean, I'm not advocating for becoming um, an autocracy or, or, you know, leaning toward a more communist regime, uh, but it is impressive with 
the way that they act. And I don't think you can uh, deny that. And I think that purely on the economic front, forgetting conflicts or anything like that, I do think that there's a major uh, challenge coming. If we're not careful, they're going to own uh, much of this clean energy market, especially on mobility, uh, if we don't get back in this game very quickly. Right. Well, anyway, it was a very eye-opening trip, and I'll have some stories coming out on that, so be sure to stay tuned. But for now, let's get back to the U.S., where it seems like we are endlessly talking about political gridlock and how federal climate policy has stalled. But maybe, just maybe, that's about to change. Shane, I know you have thoughts on this, and you just published an op-ed in The Hill this week entitled, Addressing Climate Change is a Win for Republicans, Why Not Embrace It? And we're going to talk about that piece in just a minute. And then later in the show, we're also going to hear from former Republican Congressman Bob Inglis, who is the current executive director of Republic EN, a self-described eco-right organization that believes free market solutions are the key to solving climate change. In that interview, we discussed Inglis's town hall debate with Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez from earlier this year. We also talk about the rise of the Tea Party and why he still believes conservatives can lead on climate change. So keep listening for that. First, let's start with the news that the Trump administration has officially killed President Obama's clean power plan. Wait, before we go on, we have a special announcement. This summer, we're heading back to Sun Valley, Idaho for a live political climate podcast at the Sun Valley Forum. It's a gathering of industry leaders, policy experts, and other changemakers who are committed to making a difference on climate and sustainability issues. We were there last year and we cannot wait to get back. It is a really fun event. Tickets are now available, so we hope you'll register and meet us in Sun Valley on July 23rd to the 25th. The Sun Valley Institute is offering a special discount for political climate listeners. It's $75 off a VIP full forum or conference pass. And that's by using the code FRIENDSOFSVI75. That's FRIENDSOFSV as in Valley, I-75. And you can use that code at sunvalleyforum.com. So do it and we hope to see you there. It's no secret that President Trump denies climate change. He's called it a hoax, rolled back environmental policies, and even blocked the mention of climate change from official documents. Trump's Environmental Protection Agency has now also released its replacement for Obama's clean power plan, dubbed the Affordable Clean Energy Rule, which opponents say is much weaker, while the administration says will still reduce carbon emissions. Brandon, you're following this. What is your assessment? It's a huge problem, Julia. Um, So just to rewind... It replaced the Obama Clean Power Plan. And let's just remind you of what that was. It was a rule that created emission targets for states that were very flexible on how to meet uh, and fairly easy to meet. And so that is what should be Republican-type, you know, friendly um, policy. Uh, but that wasn't good enough. Uh, they, the Republicans scrapped that. Trump, you know, scrapped it in favor of... This rule, which is essentially uh, creates incentives to make coal plants more efficient, its in- intention is to send a lifeline to coal, uh, which is a major threat to climate change. Uh, so we're going backwards and not even forwards with incremental progress, which was what the Clean Power Plan was designed to do. So look, no one has been more outspoken, at least on my side of the aisle, about needing to take climate action than I have. But I need to be inconvenienced with facts as we have this discussion. And the facts are ACE doesn't replace the Clean Power Plan because there is no Clean Power Plan because the courts threw it out. It never went into effect. So the Affordable Clean Energy Rule is the first greenhouse gas regulation 
ever put on power plants in the U.S. President Trump, just stomach this for a minute, President Trump is going to finalize the first greenhouse gas emissions restrictions ever in the United States. He deserves to be given some credit for that. The other thing is these regulations come out under Section 111. Now, just for our listeners, what that basically means is you have to regulate a source. You can't regulate an economy. And so the reason the Clean Power Plan was thrown out is because basically, as Brandon said, it gave states tools to do the things they needed to do to reduce emissions. But it didn't stick within the fence line. So it didn't say this power plant has to perform better. It said this state has to have its you know statewide emissions footprint better. Now, that might be a great idea, but our U.S. law doesn't allow that. And so I do think it's important when we have these discussions that we look at why people are doing the things that they're doing. And if you talk to EPA, what they'll tell you is, we acted as aggressively as we could under statutes authorized by Congress. If Congress wants to see us take action, more similar to the Clean Power Plan, then they're going to have to pass a law to do that. And federal courts have been clear that that's the case. I totally hear you on the legal elements of this. I just have to say that on the Trump administration approving a greenhouse gas rule, I think a lot of people would say it's a bit of a smoke and mirrors because to Brandon's point, Efficiency rules for coal extend the life of coal plants, which could actually increase emissions over the lifetime of these plants. And so is it really a greenhouse gas rule? Yes, in name. Is it a climate regulation? Is it going to curb emissions at the end of the day? That is what the conflict is over. And a lot of people say, no, it will not. It will actually intensify emissions. But the but the alternative is nothing. There is no clean power plan. People have to remember that there is no clean power plan. It doesn't exist. So the alternative to this is nothing. The alternative would be a plan that, you know, significantly reduces greenhouse gas emissions. That would be the alternative. And we're talking we're going to talk today about what Republicans are doing on climate, and there's some good language out there, but if you look at the actions, if you combine this rule, the Trump, you know, ACE rule with what he's doing on the CAFE, which is the energy efficiency for vehicles rule, and, you know, what he's trying to roll back uh, and he will do soon, and what Republicans in Congress were putting forth in amendments to make sure that the United States can't, you know, participate in funding the Paris Treaty, uh, those actions are speaking a lot more strongly to me than than words. Well, a Paris Treaty would have had to been ratified by the Senate, which, of course, you know, it was not. So it was really just a back of the envelope agreement. But aside from that, um, I, I think you're right about CAFE, right? And we've talked about the CAFE rules in previous episodes. I think it's fair to look at the Trump administration's actions there and say, why are you doing this? There's a lot of innovation that can come from these you know, fuel efficiency standards. You talked about mobility earlier and how China's making gains. Those are all fair discussions to have. I just don't think it's fair to say, because we don't like the way that, that the CAFE rule you know, was, was reconfigured, that we should criticize the affordable clean energy rule when it is the only existing regulation that reduces greenhouse gas emissions from power plants. Sometimes it's okay to say, I don't agree with this president on everything, but they just put a rule in place. I think the problem is the broader context. If this was truly the administration's best effort at curbing emissions in a way that they thought was pro-industry and it seemed like a truly good faith effort, I think you'd have to totally take your point as is on the face value. I think we just know, though, that the administration is a pro-coal administration, pro-fossil fuel development. And so this has to be understood as a lifeline to that industry. And they are working within the legal confines that they can to get something done that technically complies with 111D, but actually extends the life of these plants. And so I don't think it's entirely fair to say that this is um, in the interest of curbing emissions 
<laughs> while, I were, while it's technically falls under that category. If I worked in the White House right now, and I never have, so maybe Brandon can lend some better insight to this. But if I worked in the White House, what I would say is it doesn't matter why we're doing this. We're doing what we're required to do and allowed to do by Congress. If someone wants something different, pass a bill. This is what we're supposed to be doing. This is what Congress is supposed to be doing. They're supposed to be finding new cutting edge ways to create you know, innovation in these markets. And the, the administration, any administration, Trump's or anyone else's, would be forced to act on those laws. I think there's much cooler things we can do than regulate power plants. I think there's much more forward-looking ways to address climate change. But we are where we are, and I blame Congress, not the president. That's fair, and that's why we talk about the federal level so much on this podcast, despite a fair amount of inaction there, because it is just such a powerful branch of government if they could actually get something done. Uh, I do want to note, just for the sake of conversation, that the Trump administration is moving forward with clean energy policies in some subtler ways. For instance, the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management set a date for the first California offshore wind auction, and as generally, the administration has been pro-offshore wind. So that's just one of those ways where they are clearly pro-fossil fuels and yet still supporting clean energy policy and through some other means. So while we know where the Trump administration stands, I think we have to look also to Republican voters because they're going to matter, obviously, with the elections coming up. And we want to get a better understanding of how they're going to vote. And so to that end, a prominent GOP pollster, Frank Luntz, uh, circulated a memo recently to congressional offices saying that 58 percent of GOP voters under 40 are more concerned about climate change than they were a year ago. 55 percent are very or extremely concerned with the party's position on climate change. 69 percent of GOP voters are concerned that the party's position on climate change is hurting the party with young voters. And 53 percent of Republicans said they would be more likely to support a candidate with a plan that included a carbon tax. So I mentioned you wrote an op-ed in The Hill, Shane. Uh, you mentioned these numbers as part of that piece. What was your reaction to seeing them, and what do you think this means for the party? So I was really excited to see this because I, I trust the work of Frank Luntz. Um, he has been a, a pretty big force in the Republican Party for decades. He's been a force in Washington, D.C., and what we've come to find over time is that typically his focus groups, um, they end up being right. Typically his polling ends up being accurate. And so I, you know, I wrote this op-ed and someone on Twitter, and I'm grateful to everyone on Twitter who, who read it, but someone said, you know, that I gave a scathing takedown of the GOP. And I actually don't view it that way. I view it as me saying to the GOP, there is no one more Republican than me. I bleed the party. I'm not one of the people who's saying, I'm going to leave the party because they don't agree with me on climate. I'm just trying to pull them along. And I think having Frank Luntz, who's a very credible source on messaging and, and, and what voters want, uh, is telling us, your party is getting older. Climate change is important to most people, old or young. It is more important to young people. And you're at risk of losing an entire generation of voters, not because of your fiscal policy, not because of your anti-tax, anti-regulation policy, because you're unwilling to address climate change. And that frustrates me. And when I see some of the older bulls out there saying, oh, these young staffers, they just don't get it yet. Um, you know, Republicans aren't supposed to be dealing with climate. That's not who we are. That's just garbage. That's exactly who we are. We solve problems, and this is a problem. And so I just really felt like I had to get that piece out there, both because I believe it, but no one cares what I think. Everyone should care what Frank Lentz thinks if they want to stay in office. So I heard some of the chatter on Twitter and among other um, thought leaders um, in energy and on climate issues after those polling numbers came out. And some of them were saying, well, this is a convenient political tool, like that these numbers from Lentz are really a way for the GOP to incorporate language on climate. But at the end of the day, for reasons we discussed earlier with the Trump administration not being open to this, Republicans in Congress not actually being active on this issue, 
that incorporating climate in the platform today for Republicans is really just a check of the box and doesn't actually signal a true intention to act on the issue. That may be true for a number of Republicans, and that's why I'm out there pushing this kind of stuff. But but Luntz is just performing polling for a paying client. He's just trying to convey to members of Congress what the public expects of them. So his memo is not underhanded at all. How it's used might end up being you know not as productive as it could. But the fact that young voters in the Republican Party care about this, young voters generally care about this, and that Republicans are frustrated that we're letting Dems own the issue, those are just good facts to have in mind when you think about how you want to act moving forward on this issue. I mean, just from a pure, you know, electoral strategy, um, you'd be crazy <laughs> not to do what Shane is, you know, talking about on climate because uh, the numbers with young voters are so stark. And so I'm really glad that you wrote this piece, Shane. I'm, I'm sure you're getting some pushback, you know, from some of your uh, Republican friends. So I think, you know, demonstrating some courage to step out on this um, is really admirable thing to do. Uh, the only, you know, disagreement I had was, you know, Shane does what all the Republicans do is, you know, they sort of wheel out their trope on socialism and they say, you know, Democrats are embracing, uh, what did you call it, uh, you know, policies championed by ruthless dictators, uh, which just isn't true. Um, you know, Republicans love to put the straw man out there that doesn't exist and, and run against it, um, when in reality, Democrats are just trying to push for a fairer system. Social uh, programs, social not programs. Yeah, you know, there are other ideas in other Western democracies and capitalist countries that we could use to improve on, like Canadian healthcare and, you know, English healthcare. We're just saying, like, uh, other Western democracies have some good ideas. We should look at those, too. Well, look, look, the, the candidate polling in second right now in the Democratic primary just gave a speech defending socialism. So this isn't something that I came up with. But what I will say is I understand how that language... Who is that? What did they say? Uh, Bernie Sanders. He gave a speech called The Defense of Socialism. Um, I, I can't be 100% sure that's the title, but Google it. I encourage our listeners to Google it. It was a big deal last week. But, but my point here is that you know, I understand that you don't like those words and I don't think you're a socialist. So I didn't mean to intend that all Democrats are socialists. What I'm trying to convey to my GOP colleagues are it's not enough to say what they're doing is socialist and therefore we shouldn't do anything. If you don't like their solutions, I'm right there with you. I don't like their solutions. That doesn't mean that there isn't a problem. So what I'm trying to say is if you think there's a problem and you don't like the solution being proposed, step up and offer better ones. That was the intent of that of that passage. You know, what Shane is referencing is a piece that Bernie Sanders wrote, which is actually in defense of democratic socialism. That is very different from socialism. I don't know any Democrat or any democratic socialist that favors policies that are in Venezuela or other ruthless dictator-run countries. What democratic socialists are talking about is trying to address wealth inequality, a fairer system, that, that capitalism doesn't have all the answers, and maybe there are some ways that we can you know, help people get a better wage and such. And so... Uh, lumping democratic socialists like Bernie Sanders and AOC and all these others into socialism, which is very different. And I agree, maybe the branding is horrible, but it, but conflating those is is not accurate. What I would say is if, if you guys don't want to get into the same type of trouble that my party's getting in with climate and other issues, take the Elizabeth Warren approach. Say, I'm a staunch defender of capitalism. It's just not functioning perfectly right now and we need some rules in place. That is a defensible position. It's not my position, but yeah, it's a defensible position. position. But, uh, but but <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that I don't think Democrats are doing themselves any favors with the democratic socialism branding. I mean, the words are separate words. And even if they mean something when they're put next to each other, you know how politics works. That's not helpful. Well, what is interesting is that 
there's lots of different kinds of Democrats. And in fact, even maybe some of the progressive ones are more open to compromise than you might think. This is according to some new polling that Third Way put out in partnership with Change Research which found that extremely online, likely Democratic voters, extremely online, meaning these are likely more active um, party members, they're likely more progressive party members, um, they, they are actually very pragmatic when it comes to energy solutions. Specifically, they acknowledge that the crisis won't be solved in a few short years, and it'll take every carbon-free tool available to address climate change. 55% wanted the U.S. to focus on transitioning to 100% clean energy, which means renewables, but also nuclear power and carbon capture, while 36% said renewables only. So I think that goes to show that there could be more room for collaboration here outside of the echo chambers that we sometimes get ourselves into, because I know some Republicans are also open to carbon capture. The governor of Wyoming, for instance, very pro-coal, but also a strong champion of that state's carbon capture policies and technologies. Then there are some Republican mayors I know who've gone 100% clean energy or 100% renewable. Um, and then there's the even Green Tea Party, which has championed solar policies in many states. So I thought those were some interesting numbers coming out from Third Way on the Democratic primary vote. I guess, Brandon, I, I'm curious to know what you think of that. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to see a debate about that. Um, <laughs> a climate debate, you know, which is not happening. Uh, and I understand, you know, the Democratic Party doesn't want to do a single issue debate, but it's debatable whether climate change is a single issue or, you know, if you view it as a threat to an existential threat to our uh, species, you know, it's not really an issue. But um, next week, you know, will be the first Democratic debates. And I guarantee you that this issue will come up in those debates. And it will be interesting to see what the 20 candidates have to say about it. David Crane, uh, the former CEO of NRG Energy, was, uh, posted an op-ed in Green Tech Media this week calling, if not for a climate debate, for a sort of climate a listening session, if you will, and called for getting Republicans involved and actually hashing out some solutions on TV in a town hall kind of way. And I thought that was an or interesting... Or political climate. Exactly. Or on political climate. Especially on political climate. That's what I'm saying. So I just wanted to put that out there, um, that we are happy to host this. Um, but I thought it was an interesting concept. People are clearly, I know, hungry for a more detailed conversation. We have all these candidate plans on the Democratic side out there, but not so much of a forum to follow up and have a conversation about it. So I thought that was interesting, uh, an op-ed from, from Crane, and I encourage people to go read it. So we've talked about President Trump and Republican policies coming from the White House. We've also talked about the Lund's polling figures on how Republican voters feel about climate change these days. And so now let's look at what Republicans are actually proposing as climate solutions. While it's certainly not the mainstream, there have indeed been some ideas put forward. Tennessee Senator Lamar Alexander, for instance, has proposed a new Manhattan project for clean energy. That's a five-year proposal for 10 grand challenges to create breakthroughs in technologies like batteries, greener buildings, electric vehicles, and so on. There are also Republicans who have supported carbon pricing bills introduced in Congress. And then there's Representative Matt Goetz's Green Real Deal, which comes in response to Representative Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal. We talk about this in our interview with former Congressman Bob Inglis. And so, Shane, I first wanted to get your thoughts on whether Getz's plan is the kind of plan you wanted your party to put forward. Is this the kind of leadership you're calling for? Yeah, I think so. When I first saw the rollout, I was a little bit nervous because it sounded, you know, hokey, like, oh, the Green New Deal, the Green Real Deal. And I was nervous to dig into the details and see, you know, if it was the same thing we've always done, which is just like throw one, you know, mindless policy out there and then say we did it. 
but it wasn't that. Um, so let me just list off a couple of the bigger items that stuck out to me. And I'm not sure I could find too many people who disagree with this stuff. Maybe something here or there. But uh, one, investing in next generation zero emission sources, including renewable energy and nuclear energy, especially small modular reactors. Great. Promoting the widespread use and deployment of next generation recycling and waste management technology, which, by the way, is something people don't talk about a lot. But recycling can very, very much reduce energy usage. It's much easier and much more energy efficient to produce goods from items that were formerly goods rather than from scratch. I mean, think about glass. Recycling glass is easier than melting sand. Um, modernizing the electric grid through strategic investments in transmission, distribution, and storage. Allowing fair and equal access to energy development on federal lands. Now, a lot of people are upset that we do coal mining and oil and gas drilling on federal lands, but giving you know renewable sources access to those lands in an, in an equal amount would be fantastic as well. Modernizing the implementation of NEPA. Brandon, we've talked about this on the podcast in the past. Not all regulation is bad, but NEPA has become very, very difficult. It's tough to permit clean energy projects. Even projects that, that everyone agree would be you know, economically and environmentally beneficial have a really hard time and long road to getting, uh, to getting finished. Eliminating regulations that hinder or slow the deployment of advanced energy and creating a regulatory climate to encourage the use of new technologies. That's another thing where, again, I'm not saying that rolling back regulations is the best way to address climate in all cases, but there are some areas where you can't even test new technologies because of outdated regulations. Um, I mean, that would go toward my point of uh, getting more competitive with China. Yeah, no, it would. It absolutely would. Modernizing, and, and this will be the last one I'll list, but modernizing regulations governing hydropower. Hydropower is right now our largest, well, I should say renewable because nuclear is the largest source of zero carbon energy, but one of the, the second largest source of zero carbon energy in our country Everyone should like it, and it's in a lot of red states, which kind of makes it you know a little bit more agreeable. And it is just really, really difficult to get you know your dams repermitted and get all the licenses and everything that you need. If we really want to solve this problem, I think Matt Getz and I didn't read his whole plan uh, out loud here, but I think he proposed a number of good ways to get more zero carbon energy into our power grid that that doesn't really seem to offend you know unless I miss something. If the comparison is between Matt Getz and Donald Trump and the ACE rule, you know, golf clap for Matt Goetz. Uh, but look at that compared to what New York just did this week and passed historic climate legislation, uh, which is to, uh, you know, have net zero emissions, you know, by 2050. Uh, it's even more ambitious than what we're doing here in California, which was just on the power generation side saying, you know, you have to uh, clean energy, you know, by, by 2045. So, that's what we need to be doing, the type of stuff that New York and California are doing to match the policies to the science. I want to also say that Senator Lindsey Graham spoke about climate change at a recent EarthX conference, and he said, uh, let's just cross the Rubicon. Let's, as a party, the Republican Party, say the Green New Deal sucks, but climate change is real. The interesting follow-up is that natural gas is a key part to what Lindsey Graham considers climate policy. And so that's where I think things get so confusing. And again, we start to then divide very quickly around what to do in real terms, because natural gas, a lot of people say is a bridge fuel, it is lower carbon than say coal, but we don't know what the methane impact is. And so where does that leave us? And we know it's not good. Yeah, <laughs> we know enough. <laughs> we know enough. Um, but Shane, I'm just what do you have to say to Lindsey Graham's position? I mean, first of all, hat tip to Lindsey Graham because it oh. took me like three minutes, a minute ago to say what he said in like four words. So I got I to take speaking lessons from him. He's awful. Um, on the natural <laughs> gas side, uh, I like 
electrification, right? I like the idea of electrifying everything and making sure that we can get the lowest carbon resources onto the grid. So I'm, I'm not a huge fan of natural gas, at least on the distribution side, but I do think natural gas is an abundant U.S. resource. I think we're lucky to have it. I think we're grateful to have it. I think putting more natural gas into generation turbines is going to reduce our greenhouse gas footprint significantly as a country. I think exporting our natural gas bounty is going to reduce greenhouse gas footprints of, of countries across the world. I'm a big, big, big fan of natural gas for what it's useful for. Um, I'm not one of the people who believes that every water heater in the U.S. has to run on natural gas. We have a cleaner way to do that. So it's a great resource, uh, but it's not the only resource. Well, it'd be interesting to see what policies on the Republican side ultimately, you know, bubble to the top. Is it the Getz plan? Is it something pro-gas? Is it, uh, you know, carbon capture? Maybe it's all of the above. We'll see what does ultimately passed and put forward a lot of that will depend on how the congress looks after the next election right now it's small ball right now it's small ball um but small what could... ball is ball i need you guys to remember that like playing is better than not playing let's play ball um even the clean power plan was small ball and that wasn't good enough let's just stop <laughs> saying ball one place where we could potentially start to see for the first time some real action is the Climate Solutions Caucus, which we just learned is being rebooted by Republican Florida Representative Francis Rooney, who um, is taking the mantle over from Carlos Corbello, who did not win re-election last election. And Rooney is partnering with Ted Deutsch, the Democrat, to make new members of this of this caucus, which has been criticized for not having any teeth. Uh, new members will be required to take some kind of position on legislation. And so unsure where that will go. It's uh, early days on that front, but maybe we'll see the Climate Solutions Caucus be uh, a little more than the uh, peacocks that they've been charged with being by folks on the left. I think it'll be good to have some standards here. I think bigger isn't always better. So if you have 100 members and you say, hey, there's 435 members of Congress. we got 100 members who think climate change is real. You know, we've got a voting block here, but it's not a voting block if they don't vote. So I'm, I'm much happier to see maybe a caucus that has 20 or 30 people that can actually band together and advance or stop good or bad legislation, which is something that I think we've seen the Freedom Caucus do effectively. You don't need 200 people to kill a bill. You just need enough to kill a majority. And so hopefully these new... Um, these new guidelines are putting in place will, will make them more productive. And, and, I, and I'm not, you know, one of the people who, who said they were peacocking. I think uh, it was great what, what Carlos Cabello did. But but I think maybe we're taking the next step now where we're going to see them be able to throw their weight around a bit. Your point about the Freedom Caucus is interesting because it leads right into our conversation with former Republican Congressman Bob Inglis of South Carolina, who proposed and introduced a uh, carbon pricing bill in Congress and shortly after did not win re-election. Um, so we talk about we talk about that and how being outspoken on climate change on the right has affected his career, but also broader political dynamics like the rise of the Tea Party and how, how that has influenced politics overall in America. But before we close out with that interview, I really want to get in our usual final segment of the show. It's at the very end, but let's bump it up this week. It is our Say Something Nice segment where our Democrat and Republican co-hosts have to say something redeeming about the opposing political party. Uh, Brandon, let's have you go first. I want to say something nice about uh, two Republican members from Kansas, uh, Jerry Moran uh, and Ron Estes. They co-sponsored a bill uh, that was introduced 
called Financing Our Energy Future Act. And what this does, this is super wonky but important, is there's a thing called Master Limited Partnerships. Super boring, but what they do is it's a corporate structure uh, that allows for favorable tax treatment that reduces the cost of capital uh, to build infrastructure. And so it's an example of where you know, we're trying to compete with fossil fuels and people don't realize like how much the deck is stacked against renewables. Currently with master limited partnerships, fossil fuels have access to that. Renewables are specifically excluded. So if you want to build a natural gas pipeline, you can do this, you know, uh, structure, which gives you very much, uh, much lower cost of capital. So we could build, this would, this would help renewable energy projects be just on par like at the same level, same access as fossil fuel projects. And so financing these projects is important, and two Republicans from Kansas have stood up and co-sponsored a bill that would level the playing field for renewables versus fossils. Interesting. Shane, over to you. Okay, so I'm going to say something nice about former DNC chair Donna Brazil. Um, I just flew back from D.C. this morning, and I happened to be sitting by Donna um, I didn't tell her I knew who she was. We didn't talk about politics. We didn't talk about work. Just a really nice person. And again, another example to, to me that we don't have to agree on everything politically. When you get to spend time with people or admire some of the things that they've done or whatever the reason is that you think someone um, is is good or nice or kind or helpful or productive, um, it just helps. It's just really, really helpful. So I was just kind of impressed to know that someone I've watched on cable TV for the last 10 years can sit next to me and talk about, you know, Marvel comic book movies and and, and have that be that. I've just noticed a trend that Shane's say something nice comments are usually very relational. Like I met a nice Democrat and was shocked and, and pleasantly surprised. Brandon's like, I got a really wonky bill I can tell you about. <laughs> <laughs> Nerd alert. I mean, they're both fabulous responses. I've just noticed a trend over time. It's probably the problem with Democrats. <laughs> <laughs> And with that, let's go to our interview with former Republican Congressman Bob Inglis. A few months ago, we sat down with former Congressman Bob Inglis on site at the Schwarzenegger Institute, following his talk at the USC Climate Forward Conference. Inglis is a former six-term congressman from South Carolina who continues to devote much of his time to building a climate change platform for Republicans. We got his take on the current state of political politics and what he's doing now with his nonprofit, Republic EN. Congressman, if you don't mind, I'll, uh, I'll dive right in. Yeah. So I wanted to talk about the 2010 race. The conventional wisdom was that you had introduced a carbon tax bill. Just for our listeners who aren't familiar, I believe it started at $15 per ton and scaled up from there. Um, and that that was the reason that you had trouble in the primary. Uh, I was on the ground with Team Boehner in Ohio that same cycle, and we saw you know stuff that I think people were not accustomed to. That was the Tea Party wave. And just wanted to hear the story from your mouth on what you think happened that year generally and then specifically in your race, whether you think the carbon tax was a, was a big factor, the only factor, or, or sort of just kind of hear your story there. Well, it was. I, I committed a number of heresies against Republican orthodoxy in the Great Recession. You know, I was. Um, I voted for TARP, which uh, the Trouble Asset Relief Program, which cannot be forgiven by the Tea Party. I voted against a troop surge in Iraq. Uh, I had conservative concerns that George W. Bush, who's my friend, was doing nation building in Iraq. Let's see my other sins. Um, confessing them all here. Oh, as for comprehensive immigration reform, we never called it that, but we—I think people could smell that. 
But I think my most enduring heresy was just saying climate change is real. Let's do something about it. Because that really, more than anything else, made it look like I had crossed to the other side, that I was marching with the Democrat uh, band rather than the Republican band. And so um, that uh, led to uh, electoral defeat in a rather spectacular way. Did the uh, did the fact that you voted against cap and trade resonate at all? Basically, that you were choosing a more pro market solution, or did people not see the difference? It did not see the difference. In fact, we tried to make that case. It, yeah, you know, I was voting against cap and trade, and I had this maybe romantic notion or Boy Scout notion that you need to, you know, propose something as an alternative if you're going to oppose something else. Well, in those times, you really didn't want to do that. You just wanted to be opposed. Uh, to everything that was Obama, everything that was, you know, of the other tribe. You wanted to be in clear opposition. So just for those who may not know, what did you propose? Yeah, so I proposed, uh, it's called the Raise Wages Cut Carbon Act of 2009. And so what it was is a revenue-neutral, border-adjustable carbon tax. Pay no attention to those last two words, okay? Carbon tax. So the first no one likes two, the tax cut. Yes, mm-hmm. those first two compound adjectives. Let's focus on those. Uh, you know, it's a, so it's a it's a revenue neutral. That means we're going to cut taxes somewhere else or dividend all the carbon tax revenue back. Um, and it's border adjustable. That means it'd be applied to imports as though made here. And then yes, it's a carbon tax. And do you think? that the pushback was because of the word tax or just because this is about climate full stop? I think in those times, it was more the latter. It was, it was about climate. Um, it, but the situation's totally different now, though. I think that now um, we've had more experiences with climate change. The economy is better. And there are more eco-right organizations that are making the case as an imbalance to the environmental left. And so it's it's totally different now than it was in 2009 and 10. So, Congressman, we're here at USC and you were on a panel talking about this a little bit. Um, you mentioned, you know, the center right. And it seems like in order to get something done in a bipartisan way, it's going to have to be between Democrats and a center right. Does the center right really exist? I mean, is this the same party you still joined? Um, does it exist? Is it an organized uh, uh, thing? I don't know. It's sort of like... Who's it? Will Rogers said he was, didn't belong to any organized party, right? He was a Democrat. Isn't that, yeah. wasn't that yeah, Will he, Rogers? He's right about that. Uh, <laughs> I think it was Will Rogers, wasn't it? Uh, anyway, so is it? it's not necessarily an organized thing, this center-right. And it is, it's, it's been confusing ever since 2016 because the red flag has gone into some marshlands that we're not used to seeing it in. It's over there with the tariffs. It's over there with the spending out of control. It's over there. (laughs) This red flag has gone some strange places. Um, But we hope it gets back up on high ground at some point. But that's that's the challenge for us is at republician.org is making a conservative case for climate action. And... Um, as we reform a center right, I think that we'll find it to be bedrock conservatism to to just fix climate change. It does seem like there's an interesting split right now among Republicans. Like you say, there's more action than ever on climate change in many ways, and yet part of the party is very much denying it. The White House, in particular, you know, doesn't really acknowledge climate change exists at all. So, how do you see those pieces coming together? Do you see a pathway to to getting there? 
Um, not necessarily in this Congress, but in the next. Um, we think that by 2022 is when we could expect action. Um, but this is a building Congress. And um, so, um, and I should emphasize, it's so different than in the Great Recession. You know, in those dark days of 09 and 10, uh, people were worried about this month's paycheck, this month's mortgage payment. We were hemorrhaging jobs and wealth. And um, so... And President uh, Obama fixed it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we can't let that slide. I can't let you get away with that. <laughs> Sorry and, that my friend interrupted you. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, in the midst of all that comes this guy, Bob Inglis, uh, from the 4th District of South Carolina talking about climate change. Man, you sound like you're focused on something decades away. We're worried about here and now. And so uh, fast forward, though, a little bit. The economy's better. We've all had more experience with climate change. And there are now these eco-right organizations that help it to be heard in a language of conservatism. Do you think the Green New Deal is helping to bring some Republicans uh, on board with climate change? They may not like the Green New Deal as proposed by Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Senator Markey, but it has created a discussion, I think. Um, so what do you think about that? Could that ironically help Republicans get on board, even if in just opposition and bringing up their own ideas? Yeah, I think that that latter is, is true. That in other words, it, it, it becomes an opportunity to, uh, with all the enthusiasm and energy around it, um, it comes uh, to the middle school cheer, you know, uh, we got a solution. Yes, we do. We got a solution. How about you? You know, I mean, it's sort of like that's uh, the, the cheer we learned in middle school is basically a lot in politics. You know, that's the way politics works. So on that note, Congressman Matt Getz from Florida just introduced uh, his climate bill, the Green Real Deal. And I'm curious if you've had time to look through that. And if you have any thoughts you can share with us on that front. We're actually surprised and very excited that a conservative Republican has come forward with this. In other words, what I'm talking about, what I mean a conservative Republican? I mean, not a Republican from a marginal district. He's a Republican from a solid Republican district who has no particular need to do this other than the realities of climate change his district is going blah, 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 you know. He's in Florida, correct? Yeah, it's a district, the first district of Florida, I believe it is. And so they're having impacts of climate change. And so that's the only reason that he's acting. He's a major Trump supporter. And so it's a, it's a voice that may just cause some heads to turn. So we're, we're you know, we would have expected it more from a marginal district, so we've been talking about the Green New Deal, and I watched on MSNBC, Chris Hayes had a town hall uh, uh, in the Bronx with yeah. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez that you attended. So congrats yeah. to you to go uh, you know, to the other side and have that conversation. Uh, what did you learn? Did, did you change your mind about anything? Well, I learned that the people really love her there. <laughs> in fact, they told her so. In the breaks, they were whispering to her, we love you. And so I thought, gee, I wish they'd love me back in the 4th District of <laughs> South Carolina. Green New Deal, they will. <laughs> yeah. I was like hanging out at Brandon's house. We love her. We yeah. love her. <laughs> so, it's yeah, true. They were, they were very, it was a love fest. There were, I don't know, 350 people there, and they were chomping or stomping and cheering and carrying on. Pretty, pretty exciting. Um, uh, it was, uh, what did I learn there? Um, I, I saw the formation of the Tea Party of the Left. 
that I hope is short-lived. And I think we got a chance of it being shorter-lived than the Tea Party of the Right. And the reason is, we've all seen how much the Tea Party of the Right accomplished about nothing. But wasn't that what they wanted to do? That's the Slow difference. everything down that's, that's and why, hold the party hostage? Yeah, that's why I think we may be subjected to the Tea Party of Left for a shorter duration. And the reason is, on the right, there are a fair number of people, uh, I'm not included in this, but there are a fair number of people who agree with Grover Norquist that you want to shrink government down to a size that you can drown it in a bathtub, right? Um, and so, so on the right, the Tea Party sort of accomplishing very little is maybe exactly what people want to see, is government accomplishing very little. Um, but on the left, it's more of a sense that, okay, government is a helpful, productive force, and let's make it uh, proceed. So I think that it'll be shorter-lived. And I, I even saw in that moment with AOC some maturation, that just an awareness that, yeah, this uh, might not work too well if we're just uh, talking about uh, you know ex- what, what may be perceived as an extreme position that does not come to the center Solutionville, but rather hangs out way on the left-hand wall. What do you mean, what are you referencing exactly there? I think I don't represent those groups. I don't know exactly how they'd phrase it, but I imagine their pushback would be something like, we are trying to actually touch base with our constituents, our people. This is what we're hearing from them. And rather than work through lobbies or conventional ways of funding, we're going right to the people. We wrote our Green New Deal resolution to speak to the people. Yes, it's broad. It's not intended to pass. It's a resolution. We are trying to do it differently, I think is their point, and in an inclusive way. So I'm curious how that is exactly the same as the right-wing Tea Party. It seems like a fundamentally different approach to politics. So I'm curious how you equate them. Oh, uh, yeah, no, I see them as exactly the same. It's a populist movement. In fact, AOC said in the course of that that she had not written it for her colleagues in the House or the Senate. She'd written it for the people. Well, the people is what is a populist statement that should send up red flags for anybody who has read the Founding Fathers who had no interest in the people governing. They had an interest in representatives of the people being deliberative and governing, and they set up a republic. They did not set up a democracy. A democracy is a terrible form of government because if you've got more Baptists than Catholics, you can outlaw mass if you want to. But in a constitutional republic, don't care how many Baptists you got, the Catholics are going to have mass. It's a much better form of government. And so what, what she was talking about was actually something that I think I could sort of tell that even in saying it, maybe I was projecting my thoughts on her, but I think she might have been realizing the error of that way. In other words, you, you really shouldn't be about... Populism is a, is a dangerous force. I mean, it's, it's, um, you, you want... Popular ideas are okay, and energy and enthusiasm is fine, but remember, we've got a constitutional republic, and you work through a process... You should respect that process. Do you think the representatives that we have in government now will do that on their own, though, without pushing from the people? Um, well, surely, uh, no. It, it takes, uh, and, and that's a First Amendment right, you know, is the right to petition. Um, so um, something that's important is uh, that the, 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 the voice of the people is heard through the representatives. 
But the representatives really should deliberate and be careful about what they do. They should not just fire off with ideas that 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 it is a great big country and it was designed to be frustratingly slow because they didn't want they didn't want the mob to rule. And that's that's the problem I had with the Tea Party, frankly, is there was some mob mentality there. And a mob is always a mob, as John Adams said to Abigail when uh what was it Abigail was saying, John, shouldn't you be happy? There the crowd is finally with you and he said yes abigail but a mob is always a mob one of the ways that congresswoman ocasio-cortez distinguished um what she's doing from the tea party is she said uh the tea party was funded by the Koch brothers and she was funded by the people directly so what influence do you think that that unlimited money is having on the republican party Did that impact you and your race as well um, yeah, first of all, I think she's probably right that that that's not probably. I mean, she's obviously done very well in raising individual contributions, and it's remarkable. Um, and I think it's something that uh, uh, my party is going to have to deal with. Is that and and uh, various uh, leaders in the Republican Party are, are saying this is that maybe the days of relying on these big fat cat donors may be over. Uh, you know that you got to get these small contributions or else, you know, it's, it's going to look bad. So uh, yeah, I think that's a, that could be very healthy for the process is people, it's, it's healthy as long as we don't have this sort of uh, free agency kind of thing going on. And that is a challenge to our system is where, um, uh, for example, Joe Wilson, you remember raised uh, several million dollars within what uh, three or three or four days? It's recalled liar of saying you lie to President Obama. Um, that was a free agency. In other words, he he became a free agent outside of the party um, and raised a great deal of money. AOC has done the same thing. Um, so and and that uh, I don't know. I'm I'm I can't. I'm not sure I can solve that problem here now about what you do about that, but. Um, it's at least better, it seems to me, than a few people with a great deal of money. Congressman, I think, you know, what's interesting, what I just heard you say, and I have these conversations more so out here than I ever did in D.C., is that we are a democratic republic. That's a feature, not a bug. Uh, a lot of people think that we're a democracy, which is just, you know, factually inaccurate. And I tend to wonder if the younger generations are more in that mentality because they don't fully understand our founding documents. And do you think, in other words, do you think they're trying to take us somewhere that they'll regret when they, you know, get a little bit more experience and understand that others can use those same tools to take it a completely different direction. Spoken like a true dad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's got three children. Can you tell? <laughs> yes, there you go. Yeah, I think that's. Yeah, there's some. We we need to be reminded of that, um, and I think that this is actually a strength of the Republican Party. Typically, is because of our name, Republicans, uh, we believe in the republic and we believe in this idea of representative democracy rather than direct democracy. Now, here in California, you've you've adopted some direct democracy concepts, and it's why you end up with a book for an election, you know, about wading through all these direct democracy things. You know, I, I've definitely preferred the, the idea of representatives deliberating, and it's it's a stronger form of government. It's what it's really the genius that the Founding Fathers came up with. 
Why do you think so many Republicans today are against acting on climate? Is it the science? Is it that they just don't care to learn it or it's the science is off putting or they don't trust it? Um, Is it that the solutions don't align with their beliefs? Is that really what this is about? You know, we talked about a carbon tax proposal. The tax is that dreaded word. Um, Is it because fossil fuels are developed in their states? What among the variety of reasons do you think it is that it's so hard to sort of get traction? I know we're getting more, but it's not mainstream on the on the Republican Party side yet. I think it's mostly that middle reason you just gave, and that is that there's uh, we, we as conservatives don't think there's a solution that fits with our values. And so what we live to do at republician.org is show that it's completely consistent with our values to conserve the glorious earth and to use free market principles. And, you know, we once did an event at the University of Chicago called What Would Milton Friedman Do About Climate Change? And the 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 Milton Friedman chair of economics told us what he would do, and that is he would tax carbon dioxide. That's what he would do. And um, will that get us there fast enough to meet what the scientists are saying? It, I think it's the only thing that has a chance of getting us there fast enough. I can't guarantee it. And if it doesn't work, then we'll come back and try something else. But let's give it a shot because I think it's the fastest way to get there. And. I, I do admit that's a lot of faith in free enterprise. That we I'm, have 12 years. Yeah. Um, but let's consider the penetration of smartphones and how rapidly those moved. And if you think about it, that's I think we're in that same spot. Because I think I am expressing a great deal of faith in free enterprise here, and I believe it's going to move very rapidly. But I think it's a, it's, a, it's a reasonable faith because, you know, in the 1980s, McKinsey was asked by AT&T how many cell phones would be in service at the year Y2K, and the answer came back, 800,000. only problem for McKinsey was there were 800,000 cell phones going in service every three days. It's <laughs> Y2K rolled they around, They meant per right? day. It was a yeah. typo. <laughs> yeah, and so... Um, that, but in McKinsey's, uh, you know, f- uh, fairness to them... The the phones were clunky, the batteries didn't work, the service wasn't any good, and my first cell phone was actually a bag phone. It was a dollar a minute to talk on the thing. And so no wonder they came back with that answer. But now look what's happened. And it's because, and now this is where we got to make a distinction between maybe libertarian thought and Republican thought, is we got to admit that started with the government. The whole Internet and PC thing started with the government as DARPA, um, and some really neat things going on here in California. I've heard the story about uh, uh, some long hair hippie freak kind of looking guy in the back of a van driving around, and they were stopped by the cops, and they opened up the back doors, and here are these uh, folks in there doing the uh, the stuff about uh, figuring out how the how, how Wi-Fi would work and things like that. And they said, we're from the Department of Defense. And it was a little bit unbelievable to the cops, apparently, was that (laughs) these folks in the back of that van were from the Department of Defense. But they were. And so done by DARPA, but then commercialized. And that's what the the secret of uh, commercialization is. to hand it over as quickly as possible to the private sector and then watch cost crashes happen and... uh, service improve, and that's what we think at RepublicEN.org is going to happen with better batteries and better solar cells, and it's going to be pretty exciting. 
to take the step back to the first part of your answer there, I'm just curious to get a little more color on the values piece. I think we're talking about some of the solution side from a conservative perspective, but even just getting folks on board, how would you describe that piece of it? What are the conservative values that align with climate action? Well, for people of faith, it's uh, pretty clear that, uh, you know, we're stewards of creation. And so that should resonate with anybody who's read uh, the Pope's encyclical on the topic, um, or um, people of other faiths that should be should realize that role of stewardship. And then for, even if it's not that, it's just the, the, the sort of the commonsensical thing that, gee, we've got these resources, let's just make sure we preserve them and conserve them. And it's really quite, you know, I knew we were in some trouble when I heard Rush Limbaugh saying one time that, uh, you know, he's making fun of people in a little car or something, a, a, a fuel-efficient car, I was thinking, whoa, this is quite different than my dad, who grew up in the Great Depression, who used to tell us, take your foot off the accelerator when we're going by the Tarvers and coast to our driveway. And he always used to say, one, don't wear out the brake linings, and two, don't burn up the gas. It's interesting, gas is so cheap at the time I was learning to drive that that was the second consideration, right? The brake linings <laughs> are what he's mostly concerned about. But that's conservative. You had your own little micro-hybrid in your father. Yeah, yeah. And so, so how did it get to be that conservatives became the people who said, no, to burn it up and use it up? Mm-hmm. That's, it's, it's, a, it's something that's off. Um, and so we, we really should be more like my dad, uh, a Great Depression guy, um, and his mother, who used to save the rubber bands off the newspaper mm-hmm. in an enormous ball of rubber bands. I don't know what we were going to do with those rubber bands, but that's what she Bouncy saved. Bouncy balls. <laughs> exactly. You know, she didn't throw away anything, right? Because she's conservative. That's what it seems to me. So it's either uh, sort of an explicit faith kind of concept of stewardship, or it's just sort of a commonsensical thing about why I use it up and burn it up. So you've been so generous with your time, and we're going to stick you for some advice before we get you out of here. But but before that, be remiss if we didn't just restate republicen.org. I've had the chance to spend some time with Alex and Wynn and learn about the great work you all do. So thank you for that and, 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 and sort of being engaged on the ground, which I don't think a lot of uh, Republican groups, even ones that are pro-climate, are, are doing to that extent. And that's where I want to leave you with the, the question for advice. So I had a very ill-fated... Um, short campaign. I was running for Congress in California. I was backed by my former Team Ryan colleagues. We had a district that looked like a toss-up. We thought, you know, my background was perfect. Clean energy, family values, want to talk about access to education, all the things Good looking that, guy. Hey, now. All, all the wow. things that I thought suburban Californians cared just, about, right? Well, you know, you, you got to nice be though. honest. <laughs> <laughs> We only speak the truth. Our view is we we fit perfect with suburban California because where we're conservative, I very much am, but on things like climate and clean energy, uh, well, you know, as you heard from the beginning, it was ill-fated. And a few months in, what I came to find was uh, no one wanted to hear me talk about clean energy. They wanted to talk about immigration. No one wanted to talk about, you know, affordable education. They wanted to talk about uh, how much do I support Trump or am I Paul Ryan light? And I couldn't quite get to the issue. So my, my time has passed. But if you were talking to younger candidates or you were on the ground with the grassroots and you had people who said, we want to be Republican, we just can't connect with this platform, what advice would you give a young candidate or a young up-and-comer about 
how to talk about this issue and how to get those audiences that should align with you not to drill you down on immigration for 10 minutes, but let you talk about the benefits of addressing climate and other issues that, that people like you and I care about. Yeah. So this was a, a race in the primary, right? Uh, a- yeah, it would have been a primary. We, we didn't think there was a primary, so thought I could run to the middle. Um, and then I got primaried from my hard right. So the people who were willing to tolerate me because they had to now found someone that they actually liked. And my talk about clean energy just wasn't as attractive as, uh, you know, keep them out, lock them up, all that, all that good stuff. Huh. And and good yeah. stuff is, there, <laughs> um, you know, uh, the uh, line that Senator Hollings of South Carolina was the first I heard use it. No education in the second kick of a mule. That's right. Did do you think that your uh, our Republican friends uh, got an education in that first kick of the mule? In other words, that that they lost the, the, the what could have been a win, right? In the general, yeah, we had a seat that went from one point to twenty six points. Um, and, and I, you know, that district, I, I can't speak to specifically because if I could, I'd, I'd be in Congress right now. <laughs> but, yeah. but, but I think the bigger picture is you're hearing from people on the ground. Um, what, what, can, what can we say to them to help them understand that even if you do care a lot about immigration, even if you do care about things that aren't particularly my passion projects, these issues are critically important, not just to you, but to your kids, and, and, and communicate it in a way that makes them want to have that conversation, not want you to move on to what they want to be talking about. Yeah, it's, 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 wow, it's so, that's, a, that's a big topic, isn't it? Because I see that an analog on the Democratic side. Both parties need to figure out a way to have the very activist people have patience, because uh, what you end up with is a, an unelectable person in the general otherwise. And it happens to both the left and the right. And so um, what I'm hoping is there's no education second kick of a mule. Once it happens in a district, then the next time people realize, oh, let's choose more carefully. Let's choose more wisely in the primary to get somebody who could actually win. And it's not that they're not they're not there choosing to lighten their devotion to principle. What they're doing is they're choosing somebody who can articulate a vision of conservatism that can fit in the general election audience or that can resonate with the general election audience. It's not an abandonment of principle because I bet if they scratched you, they'd find quite a conservative, right? But they just... um, uh, But you were presenting something that could have won perhaps in the general election as it is, chose poorly. And any Democrats listening to us, I would say this. uh, If you think that Donald Trump is a a certain one-timer or one-termer, that is far less than certain. Uh, Because if the Democrats choose poorly, I can easily see a path to re-election by Donald Trump. Parties need to figure out how to choose carefully and choose somebody that can articulate a vision that fits not just with the most ardent activist in their own party, but fit with the general election crowd. Interesting. Well, we will have plenty to talk about, I think, over the course of this season and seasons to come with the 2020 election just around the corner. Congressman, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Great to be with you. Thanks for the opportunity. Great to be here. And that is our show. Thanks, as always, for listening. And remember, you can find Political Climate on pretty much any podcasting platform, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, almost anywhere you want to listen. So be sure to subscribe and consider leaving us a review. 
Also, you can find us on Twitter at poly underscore climate. We always like to hear from you. And for now, until soon.